Hey everybody, welcome to episode 71 of Literary Disco, Department of Speculation. We'll begin this episode with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take a book down from our shelves to discuss. And then we'll talk about Jenny Ophill's slim, formally inventive novel about marriage and motherhood entitled Department of Speculation. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me as always, essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey guys. Hello. Hey, how are you? What's going on? Well, um, I should mention since I brought it up last time, I had my baby. Woohoo! Woo! Congratulations! How's little Todd Strong doing? Todd, Todd Julia Strong. <laughs> Juliad. 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 How Juliad, could you forget? Juliad, Juliad Strong, Strong is now 10 days old, so things are going well. Yeah. 10 so days. Wow. Settling in. And that, what, that means a lot of sleeping, a lot of... A lot of, of sleeping, a lot of pooping. Talk. No. They can't talk. Not yet. You. And they can't okay. smile yet, although I, I, you know, we've caught a couple smiles, but of course it's probably just gas, so... <laughs> you always think said. you know you, you always take credit for it you're like oh he totally smiled at me it's like no he, he really didn't how do you know but when the first non-gas smile occurs well i i, I you, you know like if you look at like my wife my wife and, and my google record for the last 10 days is probably so predictable like all the things that you look up like how many ounces of milk is normal uh how many <laughs> hours of sleep is normal at what point will a smile actually be social uh you know like we've been obsessively googling everything every day um like most parents i guess but uh it's six months i think usually it's about about six months in is when they can socially smile okay all right is there a point at which it is socially unacceptable to smile when you have gas? <laughs> <laughs> I think at a certain age it just becomes accepted as a grimace, though. Just, just a painful... Hey, speaking painful of uh, socially unacceptable things... Um, I'm we glad had... you said that, not gas. <laughs> speaking no, no, of gas. No, no, no. No, uh... Someone pointed out on our Twitter, and I'm both embarrassed and defensive about this, that when Todd asked our dumb questions at the end of the year, that I gave the exact same answer as I had the year before of what shirt I was wearing. Are you wearing. serious? <laughs> Which I have no memory of, but um, like, yeah, guys. I actually remembered that because when you brought it up, I was like, oh, I, I, I didn't realize it was the same shirt, but I remember you had brought up the 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 company that did yeah, that printed those shirts. Well, <laughs> so that's I funny. Just so you've been wearing the same shirt for two years. That I, guys, I'm not shallow. I wear the same five sweatshirts <laughs> basically 80 days out of the year. So chances are I'm wearing one of them at any time we are doing this podcast. I can't be bothered. Well, I think a sweatshirt is, is an evergreen. Yeah. I'm like, you, you can't, you can't judge a person based upon the sweatshirts that they wear because I have sweatshirts that I had in college still. Like undergrad, 25 yeah. years ago, or however long. Absolutely. Ago. And Ryder, Jesus just Christ, so you know, uh, you were criticized for also naming boots. You did boots two years in a row, but two different boots. So. Well, the two different wow. boots. I like boots. <laughs> Yeah. Why don't we criticize Todd for asking the same dumb question? I do. <laughs> Favorite uh, article. Julia did. <laughs> <laughs> Julia did criticize me for asking the same dumb questions. Favorite piece of clothing, uh, asshole. It, Who cares? Well, just so you guys know, next year uh, the questions are going to be a lot of things about linens, um, a lot of things about another uh, thing I never change. Hair care products. 
Oh, <laughs> Julia, change your fucking linen. If, if you've learned nothing from Department of Speculation by Jenny Ofolds, it's change your fucking linens. <laughs> All right, so oh, bookshelf man. revisit. I've got... Yes. Um, I don't really have like a specific... Well, I do have one specific book I guess I'll bring up, but I, I've been going through an intense bookshelf, actual bookshelf revisit because I moved recently and so I had to move all my books, which meant packing them all up in boxes, bringing them over to the new house, unpacking all of them, re-alphabetizing or figuring out how I was going to categorize my books. Like, where do I put nonfiction? Ugh, do best. I separate poetry? Do I? It's kind of the best, but it's also so anxiety-inducing because I don't have enough room. Like, I just mm-hmm. don't have enough bookshelf space. And... Of course, I keep adding new books, and so I need to have a little extra room so I'm not constantly just throwing away books or piling books up on random, you know, tables. And So it was just an interesting experience, as it always is, to, like, be going through my books and realizing, like, what I want to keep and what I want to throw away and how I want to categorize. And I found this book, and it just struck me, like, well, in general, what struck me about the whole process was how many books I keep because I am pretentious. Um, there are so many books <laughs> that I realize I will never fucking read that I only yeah. keep because I want to show off that I have this book or yes. I want to feel good about myself or it makes me feel smart to own this book. a lot of truth realize, coming like, out right now. Oh, wow. no, it's so, it, it was so like devastating like to have this self-reflection. And the one that killed me was I remember buying this book as a teenager, I bought a book when I was like 15 because I couldn't drive yet. It was in my hometown, my tiny, tiny hometown bookstore. I remember buying this book and thinking, this book is, is going to change my life. It's so smart. It's called Kant's Transcendental Idealism. Now, oh God. And I bought it because oh, I loved the title because it made <laughs> me feel so smart. Now, I have kept this book for what? 20 years now and never thrown it away never fucking read it just moved it from one bookshelf to the other because it made me feel like in a you know it seemed like the kind of book a smart person had on her bookshelf right. and i when i saw it this time unpacking i was like what am i doing with this book and i took a photo of it and <laughs> opened it up and read the first like couple pages to see what the hell is this book and you know of course it's just some obscure pseudo-academic take on Kant, Immanuel Kant, and like, I don't even know, you know, it's just some weird sort of corner of, you know, Kant studies that no one has ever read, no one will ever read, it's probably already been forgotten, I don't know anything about, I can't even tell you the author's name because I immediately put it in the goodwill pile, Um, but I just wanted to like sort of comment on my own pretentiousness and like how we all do this to a certain extent. But for me, it hit me so hard when I saw this book, Kant's Transcendental Idealism. Maybe it's Kant. I don't even know how to pronounce it correctly. But there I was like finally getting rid of this book. And I feel like that's my goal with my new bookshelf is to keep books that I actually want to keep, that I actually either have read or plan to read um, instead of just books that I want to show off that I have or um, (laughs) that I, you know... I don't know. And it's just, and I'm sure it's, and I, the other thing that I noticed is if a book had been made into a movie or was incredibly popular, I had the tendency to want to get rid of it. Oh. Like I didn't feel mm. the need to keep it. And 
That one I can kind of, like that pretentiousness, I can kind of rationalize because most of the reason that I want to have a bookshelf is so I can talk about books with people and share them with people when they like come to my house or when we're having conversations. And, you know, having like a, a book that everyone owns or that everyone's read, like Eat, Pray, Love on your bookshelf is kind of pointless. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to read that book. I mean, I haven't read that book, but the, a book like that, I'm that never going to read or reread. And I am not going to be like, hey, you should check this book out because everyone knows about that book. Um, so, but that, that was another sort of tenets. Anyway, I just made me, I just wanted to sort of comment on bookshelf pretentiousness in general. I like to keep the like books the... that everybody has because that can uh, bring out people that you didn't know like to read, but you know, they've read only That's the books true. that everyone's read. So I get a lot of people chatting about my, uh, actually the book that people comment on the most is the Steve, Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. People borrow that from me all the time. Um, cause that's just a book yeah, that, that people book, really, like a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah. They just like it. Even if they don't read a ton and side mm-hmm. note, um, a lot of my friends listen to the podcast and have I told you guys, there's one book that at least 10 of my friends have borrowed and returned because of our podcast. You want to guess what it is? Uh, the girl next door. No, no one, no one wants that <laughs> shit. <laughs> Plus you burned your copies. So. Actually, you're close though. You're close. Really? It's my Is friend it? Dahmer. Everybody really? wants it. Everybody wants book. to read that. I think you know, they're horrified and they know I have it, so they'll speak. But it's also a quick read too, because right. it's a graphic novel, so it's an easy thing to borrow yeah. and, and read quickly. Yeah. Speaking of uh, of the girl next door, though, yesterday Stephen Graham Jones texted me with a photo of Gabriel by Edward Hirsch to say, "All right, I'm going to read it." Yeah. Oh, that's a weird, <laughs> so, weird crossover. Steve, <laughs> Stephen Graham Jones read Gabriel yesterday, and uh, I, I said to him, "You know, be prepared to cry." And he said something very funny. He says, was a good book, a good read. Thanks. Very beautiful. Boy. Way less commas, though. <laughs> oh, <my> God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm, I doubt he way. cried. For a man who stabbed himself in the foot right. to win a contest, That's true. he's probably not, not I'm, crying. I'm the same way with, with those books. And a lot of times... But, I mean, there's, there's a weird thing because I'll have those books that... Um, I've had forever, like the baseball handbook that my old phone number was on, um, right. or you know, books on sports trivia or whatever it is I've had since I was twelve. That for some reason I won't give away. But then, by the same token, I have like all of these huge biographies of Agatha Christie, and all I, your Agatha Christie biographies. I, why that? I, what, I, you, I have no did idea. You just read like, Agatha people, Christie. Or? People give me these huge biographies of Agatha Christie, and then sometimes I'll be yeah. in a bookstore. And I'll see something, you know, the truth about Agatha Christie. I don't fucking like Agatha Christie. <laughs> I have no Wait, idea why. What? This is a very random piece of information. How many biographies of Agatha Christie do you have? Oh, I bet I have four. What? Yeah. And and sometimes, you know, publicists will just send them to me. Like, we get books to, to review. I guess no, that kind of makes sense because you're like a mystery person. Right. So yeah, it does right, sort of make sense. associate you with. But I uh, I don't have any interest in Agatha Christie. Uh, you know, I haven't read any Agatha Christie since, you know, 1979 when I was eight years old. Um, but every time I go to throw it away, I'm like, well, it is pretty cool to have these uh, looks into the truth about Agatha Christie's life. I should 
put this gold leaf book back up on the shelf. And there it sits, waiting for some 95-year-old woman to come in and read it with a a blanket on her knees. Maybe she has so many biographies because she did something awesome and you just don't know because you haven't opened it. Yeah, that's probably true. Well, thanks, Julia. You're welcome. Now I'm going to have to go read Agatha Christie's biographies. But I I have a ton of other books that I keep just for that, for the rare chance that someone might show up at my house and look at my bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's we all do, I guess, to a certain extent. But that that was the one that really clinched it from me. It was like this has survived twenty years of bookshelf purging, and I'm still carrying it around. And I still didn't want to get rid of it. I was still like, maybe I should read this. Maybe there's something to it. Ugh, <laughs> horrible. No. You'll never miss it. No, no. Well, now I will. Now, I, now I feel like I should read so, it. So because I brought it up. My revisit is also a little pretentious, and I'm going to take a one second pause to grab it from a table over there. One second. Hey, this is Tucker, the producer, while Julia grabs her book. I will say there are at least eight Agatha Christie biographies. You didn't need to know that, but now you do. Okay. Wasn't that? That's pretty close. Um, there was. That was really big. What? I started counting. I just said, one second pause, and then you came back. <laughs> Perfect. It was, you know, out of arm's reach, but right over there. Um, anyway, last night I was... Stuck. It's very cold here in Connecticut right now. Yesterday it was seven degrees, oh my God. and right now it is three degrees. Oh my God! It's very bad. Yesterday, yesterday where I live, it was seventy-seven degrees. Okay, well, um, subtract seventy from that, and you got where I was. And I was in Hartford, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a book, and I had like two free hours. So I ran up to um, the improv studio that I own, and we have a comedy library where people kind of drop off books about funny people or improv manuals or stand-ups or joke books or whatever. And um, I just grabbed a couple of books that I had never read. And I thought this book was going to be okay, but I started reading it, and it turns out it is great. Um, Steve Martin's Born Standing Up. Have you guys read this? No. No. Um, so it's just a, it's a memoir of his, but he is, he's a really, really, really good writer. Um, and I grabbed it because I wanted to read to you guys the first couple paragraphs because it's just really, it's so much better written than I expected. And then I felt like a pretentious asshole for expecting it to be, uh, really bad. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to read from the, uh, introduction. Okay. Um, I was seeking comic originality, and fame fell on me as a byproduct. The course was more plodding than heroic. I did not strive valiantly against doubters, but took incremental steps studded with a few intuitive leaps. I was not naturally talented. I didn't sing, dance, or act, though working around that minor detail made me inventive. I was not self-destructive, though I almost destroyed myself. In the end, I turned away from stand-up with a tired swivel of my head and never looked back until now. A few years ago, I began researching and recalling the details of this crucial part of my professional life, which inevitably touches upon my personal life, and was reminded why I did stand-up and why I walked away. In a sense, this book is not an autobiography, but a biography, because I am writing about someone I used to know. Yes, these events are true, yet sometimes they seem to have happened to someone else, and I often felt like a curious onlooker or someone trying to remember a dream. I ignored my stand-up career for 25 years, but now, having finished this memoir, I view this time with surprising warmth. One can have, it turns out, an affection for the war years. So he's just a really complex and thoughtful writer, and 
it's all about uh, comedy and art and experimentation. And I've only read, you know, 100 pages of it, but I was just shocked by how good it was. I mean, most celebrity memoirs, especially about comedy, like, they're trying so hard to be funny at least once a page that they kind of lose that really reflective sense of what it means to make comedy as art, which is a, a nearly impossible thing to write about, I think. Um, so, yeah, highly recommend it. I hope it's good the whole way through. Yeah. Well, he's always well, been... Steve, Steve Martin has always seemed like an extraordinarily yeah. intelligent person. Well, I right. feel like, didn't he, like, study philosophy or something crazy? Like, Yeah. I, someone told me... I don't know. But, yeah, his writing is always... Like, he wrote that play, Picasso, La Pina Gilles. Did you guys ever see that play? So good. So good. Right. And he wrote Shop Girl. The, I never read the novel. the novel Shop Girl, but I really liked the movie, uh, which he obviously wrote and directed, too. Um, and he also sings and plays... Uh, the banjo. The banjo. I mean, he tours as a musician now, too. I mean, for a guy who says, I couldn't sing, I couldn't dance, I couldn't act... Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out... <laughs> Yeah. That's the great basis for a long career as a singer, dancer, actor, uh, comedian, it turns out. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I can't wait to finish it. And it's, it'll, I'm going to guess it'll be my, one of my favorite comedy books of all, all, all time. I mean, it's, it I tried was, to, uh, I tried a lot to watch Roxanne recently, and it was not a good movie. Do you guys remember Roxanne? Really? It's not good? Was that the Cyrano de Bergerac? Yeah, I thought yeah. it was going to, like, in my mind, I loved that movie, and I owned it on VHS. I remember specifically going to the warehouse and buying it on VHS, and it was on cable the other night, and I was like, oh, fuck yeah, Roxanne's on two hours of my life that I can, you know, just be an absolute joy, and 20 minutes in, I was like, I, I, wonder, I wonder if I need to go to the bathroom. I should see about going to the bathroom. Going to the bathroom sounds good. <laughs> huh. Yeah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as entertaining. It was, uh, it was just sort of dumb. Which is too bad. Well, that's too but bad. A lot of people feel that way about me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what was your revisit? Uh, entertaining yet dumb, Todd. <laughs> you know, uh, I went and revisited The Atavist because I hadn't looked at it in quite some time, and uh, I listened to a really compelling eighteen-part essay called "The Trials of White Boy Rick." by Evan Hughes, um, which is an essay about a white boy named Rick, who was, as they say, moving weight in Detroit in the 1980s. Uh, he was a teenage boy, and uh, he was purported to be one of the biggest drug dealers in the city, a city that was run by uh, generally black gangsters. Um, and he ended up getting arrested and being sentenced under this draconian law that existed um, up until 1995, where they were giving life in prison without parole to people on their third drug offense. Um, so at 18 years old, he got a life sentence for selling cocaine, um, mostly on his reputation for being a cocaine dealer, but not actually for the amount of weight that he was moving around the town. Um, and so it's this very interesting and in-depth examination of who White Boy Rick was, interviews with him in prison, interviews with the FBI agents who used him as a mole, wow. um, this giant case basically that's been built up against him by uh, what seems to be crooked cops. Um, it's, 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 as all things are in the atavist, extraordinarily, extraordinarily well-researched, really well-written, and um, just the perfect bite-sized amount of organized crime and simple human sadness um, that 
I can read or listen to every night for my life. I, I like the last week I was having trouble falling asleep, probably because I'm writing and if I'm writing and then try to go to bed, it's like trying to stop a semi from rolling down a hill. Um, that was actually not a bad metaphor. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can get that into the book. Um, and so instead of watching TV or instead of reading, I found that listening to these audio essays on The Atavist really turned my brain off in a very compelling way. And frequently I'll fall asleep with my headphones on and I'll think, oh my God, did it just seep into my brain? The answer is no. Um, I, I apparently I ripped the headphones out about 40, 40 minutes in. <laughs> Get wrapped around your neck. And yeah, and that's another fear. The, yeah. the other night it was super cold. It, it was in like the thirties. I know that's not oh, super cold wah. for you, Julia, but super cold in the desert. And I fell asleep in bed with um, with a sweatshirt on with my hood up, and I kept having dreams of being suffocated and having someone put a bag over my head. And I woke up and. I had somehow pulled the strings on my hoodie super tight around my throat <laughs> and was girding myself in my sleep. And I was like, oh, note to self, don't wear a hoodie. That's how 18% of New Englanders die every year. <laughs> Let me change your life. Um, sleep phones. They are headphones that you can wear around your head as a band, and they uh-huh. come with Bluetooth, so they're wireless. Oh, it's genius. Oh, that's nice. Wow. That's, I will that's check how that I, out. I go to sleep every... Well, not now, because I have a baby I have to listen to in case he starts crying. But every night for the last, like, four years, I go to sleep listening to podcasts and audiobooks. And, wow. Um, and it's the best way to do it. Sleep phones. They're awesome. Yeah. And it's very cathartic, because you can have your eyes closed mm-hmm. and listen, and then all of a sudden, you're just asleep, which is yep. nice. Yeah. Um, but if, if any of you are interested in... Um, in Detroit in the 1980s in crime and and white boy Rick apparently has been mentioned in a lot of kid rock songs uh, <laughs> it just thought I am not terribly familiar with um, but it is uh, it's a really compelling read slash listen and um, I, I've moved on from that to this other piece um, called the dead zoo which is about um, the stealing of rhino tusks around the world oh yeah Ooh. I listened to that one so Which good. is, it's absolutely fascinating. And that um, one goes so somewhere ha- I didn't expect it to. It, it ends up being about like Irish gypsies, which was oh really well. Thanks for ruining uh, what wow. my night's going to be in four days. Um, get there. Wow. I guess they're within like five minutes. It's, oh, okay. It's really um, fascinating. And so, and if you guys aren't familiar, we've talked about it before. We we actually read a piece from the Atavist on the show. But if you're not familiar with the Atavist, it's long form journalism, sometimes fiction that you can read or listen to on uh, your iPad or on your phone, and uh, it's it's worth spending a couple bucks a month to have access to. Um, it's good stuff. So that is my revisit, The Trials of White Boy Rick. Now, let's go to a disintegrating marriage with people with a new child. <laughs> Perfect! Exactly what I want to be reading. Oh. Who picked this? <laughs> so we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, Literary Disco listeners. Uh, so today we thought we would read a book to send Ryder into a swirl of desperation, sadness, self-recrimination, <laughs> and uh, possibly necessitate um, 
his hospitalization. We read The Department of Speculation by Jenny Othill. Um, Jenny Othill is the author of one previous adult novel called Last Things, which came out in 2000. Um, but she's also the author of several children's novels uh, or children's books, including 17 Things I'm Not Allowed to Do Anymore, 11 Experiments That Failed, a book called Sparkly that uh, Ryder has pre-ordered, um, <laughs> another one called While You Were Napping that Ryder is currently reading aloud to his child, um, and then she's also done um, several anthologies, um, The Friend Who Got Away, 20 Women's True Life Tales of Friendships That Blew Up, Burned Out and Faded Away, etc., um, she was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for her first novel, Last Things, which was also a notable book of the year by the New York Times. She teaches creative writing at Queens University in Brooklyn, or Queens University, Brooklyn College, and Columbia University. Um, and Department of Speculation came out earlier in 2014 and was pretty much hailed in every corner of the world. Um, it was, it received nothing but um, extraordinarily great reviews and was named one of the 10 best books of 2014 by the New York Times Book Review. So the New York Times, they list their 100 best books, then they pick 10, and Department of Speculation was one of the 10. And then just anecdotally, what I can say is uh, I did a little poll of all of the students in my MFA program this year of their favorite books, and there's 100 students, and Department of Speculation and the em by Jenny O'Fall and the Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson were far and away the two biggest winners. So um, that's interesting. This is a, a, a well-loved book. Um, it's an unusual book. It is not written in a normal narrative way. So we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, but broadly, it's about a man and a woman and a child and the beginning of a relationship, the disintegration of a relationship, and in the middle, the raising of a human being uh, alongside of it. And um, and maybe the descent into madness uh, along the way also. Yeah. So it, it, I, I absolutely thought it was um, a remarkable, demanding, upsetting, highly depressing novel. <laughs> um, with, Luckily it's short. With odd, it's short also. It's 175 pages um, with surprising bits of humor and, um, and huge amounts of insight. And it does something really cool uh, that we'll talk about in just a second. <clears throat> where she basically makes you question every single thing she sets out as fact in the book by the very virtue of stating early on in the book that her job is to fact check other people. Um, and it, it ends up being sort of a, a device similar to what Amy Hempel uses in the short story in the cemetery where Al Jolson's buried, where at the beginning, she's, uh, the friend says to the narrator, tell me things that don't matter. And the narrator of In the Cemetery Rod Wilson's Buried just starts saying things and you don't know if they're true or not. And then you invariably have to go and, and this is before Google existed, but you have to go Google um, to see if, if, if it's true that you need 50 people in a room in order to have two people at the same birthday or whatever you know, other facts there are. So I, I, I left this book feeling challenged emotionally, challenged intellectually and challenged creatively. I thought it was, um, an amazing achievement. To be perfectly honest, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. So that's it, Larry Desco. We'll see you next week when we talk and about it. Todd a is book. done. Right. I'm done. What about you two? Well, I'm a little more mixed about this book. I 
I went through a really intense phase of hating it while reading it. I <laughs> I love you know you, you know what the theme the theme of of today's episode is pretentiousness. I thought this book was pretty pretentious um, at times. It won me over. It's it, it's a snooty book. I felt it felt. The, the beginning was awesome, and I got like 20 pages in. I was like, this is the best book I've ever read. And then I really, really hated it for about 100 pages. And I what had to What was keep... the turn? Uh, the turn was that there was actually a story, and there was actually emotional content um, that I started to care about. But it took 100 pages for me to get there. Um, I really... I think, you know... When, the, by the end of the book, I, 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 I finally decided it's a book for... It's a book for writers. It's a book for people that write and maybe a book for people that read a lot. So or in a way, it's divorce. good for... I'm sorry? <laughs> or people who divorce. Right. No, I, I just well, feel... they don't divorce. They don't divorce. No well, divorce. don't give away everything. Spoilers. Um, it's a very... <laughs> I don't know. It's just... I, I, I found this... Like, I almost, like halfway through, I, I wanted to put the book down and, and do a... Um, uh, uh, classics corner for you guys with this book because it became such an easily imitatable style and um, it became so easy for me to make a parody version of this the prose style because it's so um, like it's, the book is written with many paragraphs and each paragraph is com you know seemingly completely disconnected from the paragraph preceding it and she pulls from Buddhism, uh, Socrates, um, scientific tidbits, astronaut factoids, uh, real history. I mean, it's so all over the place. And it just started to feel like somebody really overeducated, cribbing notes and like trying to show you how educated they were. And I just, I, it just felt, it, it, I don't know. I, I just kept wanting to say like, stop, like stop trying to prove to me how many different books you've read or how many different um, facts you know and just tell me the story. Like, just just draw me into your life or what you're trying to make me feel. And she did and it got there. And so a lot of this criticism is actually, I think, for naught because I'm sort of, that is the process of reading the book. But I do think it's worth noting that you have to kind of get through that section or, or maybe some people will people that read this well, like me i think it's it's sort of related to um a kind of book so remember we read that book submergence yeah yeah uh, is that what it was called yeah yeah which does a very similar thing yes um or the english patient by michael andache does a very similar thing um where you are getting the picture of a character who is breaking apart being shown through the objects of their obsession versus a straight linear progression of, of story. So when she's obsessing over astrophysics um, or when she's obsessing over, um, you know, which friends of hers are going to stop being her friends or, or whatever it might be, it, it's as though it's as though she's flipping through a scrapbook and sticking her finger down and saying, that's that was the, the turning point. No, that was the turning point. No, that was the turning point. Um, and trying to make sense of things. And I think it's it's sort of a menage is that a word a melange a melange that's <laughs> menage is not the word I was looking for. Um, it's sort of a melange technique that i find for a book like this works because if it's just a straight narrative of 
a man and a woman who think they're going to have a cool artsy life meet she's a little depressed all the time they have a child her life gets worse he starts to stray they somehow stay together they somehow break apart and then what will happen if they move to the country is a pretty boring fucking story um you know it's it's literally white people problems writ large um but if you want to write that story and you want it to have meaning i think you have to attack it from a different angle and the angles of intrusion here i think have to be intellectual to show also how little all that intellectual stuff means when it comes right down to you know basically oh my husband wants to have sex with someone else it doesn't matter how much you know about space when the space in your bed is occupied by a stranger right oh well, again another right. me, uh, me get that down right that incredible down. Right down. Um, so good. i yeah i it's interesting. I fall somewhere between the two of you guys, but as for the um, scientific style, and really the style of the short paragraphs about unrelated things, I mean, my interpretation of that is, you know, we know she's fact-checking and she's ghostwriting, and I think the science, the more sciencey ones worked a lot better than the uh, literary quotes or the philosophy because it felt more like these are the things that the character's experiencing and we're seeing them through her lens of incredible pain and uh, family problems. So, you know, reading the sentence with that context looming over the novel worked really well, whereas the philosophical ones, I agree with you, Ryder, felt just like, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, back to either science or story. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. And but the then, point of view is interesting, too. In that, oh, yeah. You know, the point of view is really interesting. It actually. shifts right. halfway through the book, or more than... It, it shifts three times. It shifts... Yeah. Yeah. It starts in first person, goes into third person omniscient, and then shifts back in on the last pages to um, first person. Or is it the plural voice? Is it the plural. we voice? We. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. second person, because it's you. It's it's direct address to right. the, yeah. the husband. So she does, and she says, so she's also, the, the narrator is teaching creative writing, um, which, um, so it's an in for me. The book's already a winner for me. That's (laughs) what, that's what I mean. I think this is a book for writers. I feel like, because I mean, there's, there's a part of the book where she starts listing all the rules that she's breaking, you know, like the the writerly rules that she teaches her students. And then she's breaking them all. And, and then, you know, there's, there's some good stuff with that. I mean, I, I definitely, like, like I said, it arrives at a really cool place because I feel like at the end of the book, she's essentially saying, I've, I've been full of shit. Like as a narrator, as a writer writing this book for you, I've been full of shit with all my intellectual factoids and mm-hmm. um, style right. stuff because that's all crap. And and she does it by quoting Emily Dickinson. Um, but she says, what Emily Dickinson said, existence has overpowered books. Today I slew a mushroom. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like that quote, you know, that comes right near the end of the book. And it really becomes about experience versus representation and you know she sort of arrives at a place where she says real experience and real life is what matters and and not all this thought or representation of of life and all these different modes of interpretation that she's been struggling through or trying to understand really matter what really matters is you know her life and physical realities and and you know the last lines of the the book are about her 
her child not being able to name things because her child is mm-hmm. sort of just living the experience of life and and not trying to categorize her name or understand everything around her and and that is a wonderful sentiment and i love mm-hmm. where the book ended up i just i don't know if i needed the whole book to get there which is something i feel like i'm saying a lot on this show but which is you know even though it's short it it, it, it kind of bummed me out like for a long part of it, I was I was reading this book, going, Ugh, I don't like this person, and I don't. Why well, don't you know? Let's read a well, little bit. Let's read a little bit to just give a sense for our listeners, because I'm just gonna okay. pick a page sure. at random, because it, when when you go back, look at when you're going back on it, it really does jump around like crazy. So, chapter fifteen begins: Survival in space is a challenging endeavor. As the history of modern warfare suggests, people have generally proven themselves unable to live and work together peacefully over long periods of time, especially in isolated or stressful situations. Those living in close quarters often erupt into hostility. Then the next paragraph begins in italics. Don't cook. Don't fuck. What do you do? Don't cook. Don't fuck. What do you do? Next paragraph is not in italics. Einstein wondered if the moon would exist if we didn't look at it. I mean, it's like, you know, those three paragraphs, it's like these jumping around, you're kind of vaguely connected by science or space, but it's like, what, what, you know, that you're doing this constant right. gymnastics as a reader where you're like, why am I reading? Oh, and you're sort of, and I started to feel like you could really easily just recreate this by putting a bunch of facts together on a page and separating them by paragraphs. And I guess it's sometimes it started to feel like the the impression of meaning rather than actual meaning. But then other times it really works. And so here's an example from towards the beginning, probably from the period of time where Ryder thought it was the best book he had ever read. Right right after they have the baby, this, and this is all just one paragraph, which is, I think is to its strength. Ours job involved traveling around the world, talking about the future and how we might rush towards it. I walked up and down the hall, listening to him talk to you about the end of everything. The invention of the ship is also the invention of the shipwreck, he was saying. 20 steps forward, then 20 steps back again. Thump, 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 thump went the music. But the heartbeat song only enraged the baby. On and on she screamed. So in that paragraph, the scientific and philosophical metaphors are part of the scene. And I think, you know, I marked that because I thought it was really beautiful because it was embedded in life the way that it is in life. Um... But yeah, it does take a turn. But why does the, why doesn't the character why doesn't the character have a name? Why is it R? The character's name is not R. The character doesn't have a, there's no one has any names. Why? Why not? To be the the every woman and the every man and the every child. But right? then Obviously. but then but sometimes they do have names. Like there's a, a student named Leah. There's R. Right. Then there's no, a no, friend Leah, that's called just the philosopher. The philosopher. Then there's like her sister. It's just her sister. Like it's just kind of a a mishmash of like stylistic poses to me in so many ways. Like I, and I don't know, like I, and like I said, it ultimately did kind of, it was a good book and it got me to a cool place. But I wonder if this is a book that in 10 years, we're going to look back on and just be like, wow, oh, full of shit was this. Like we no, just, we are all so, suckered because, because I don't think so either. it felt I think fresh this at is, the time. You know, this is a book about someone disassociating. So, yeah. you know, they're, they don't give themselves a name because they are losing identity. I mean, so the main character, the the, the woman, um, is falling apart. She's losing everything she thought that she was. She's she's now mommy or wife, um, and you know is is losing everything. So I, I think it's it's 
a natural thing for her not to be named in, in this sort of novel. I mean, there's a rich history of that sort of thing. I, I think of this book also a little bit like the Mary Robeson book, Why Did I Ever?, um, which is mm -hmm. written in a, in a similar fashion. But I, the reason why I don't think people are going to look back on this book in 10 years and say, oh, this was some poser novel or, or whatever it is, and of course, you know, my feelings about the book are different because I loved it, um, is that it it is dealing with evergreen things, you know, people who lose themselves, people who start to go a little crazy, people whose relationships fall apart, people who have a child and their life is not what they thought it would be afterwards. Um, people who try to look back on the moment they were most happy and figure out who should be included in that memory. I mean, there's that, there's that great part um, in the book where the husband asks her when was she most happy and she realizes only later that he wanted to be included in that memory. Um, but it's also, I think, just a, a picture of, of people trying to get along in a changing world and realizing that they need to go to, they need to lose everything that they thought that they wanted to, to be happy. Um, and, you know, I don't, it doesn't make for an entirely joyful reading experience, certainly, but I think it's an interesting look at how I think real people live and, and the way real people think. Um, and the fact is, you can be a elitist, overly educated, lily white person and still be the most, and have all the privilege in the world and still be the most sad, upset, fucked up person on earth. Um, right. As the movie Foxcatcher will <laughs> show to everyone if you go see it. Um, well, I, yeah, I agree with you, Todd. And I, you know, I was a little surprised in your intro that you m mentioned uh, Descent into Madness, which we can talk about if you want to. But because for me, this was a very artistic representation of very, very ordinary experience um, and the struggle that a lot of women go through after they have children. I mean, watching some of my friends not, not go through adultery experiences, although I've seen that too. Um, but that loss of identity when you have a child and you, you know, give up that dream of being an art monster, as um, it's called in this book, um, that felt very real to me and not insane at all. It felt like this is something that a lot of people that I know have experienced, this kind of profound sadness and shift in who they are and what all this stuff means. I mean, I wonder if this book suffered... Um, in maybe your estimation, writer, and maybe some other people's, and definitely a little in my own, from being so New Yorky. I mean, there's a lot yes. of New York stuff in here. That was my one problem with it, to be perfectly yeah, it's honest. Yeah, got, it's got bangs are mentioned like five times. Too many bangs. <laughs> um, yoga, bangs, yoga, all of the... It just starts to feel like we know that a stereotype rather than specific experience. And in the brief part of the book that does not take place in New York is, to me, the strongest part so yes. i wonder if Ryder would have liked this book if it was a tragic midwestern frigid winter <laughs> a million times more no without a doubt no i mean that's that's i think that but that's part of the thing for me is this feels like a brooklyn novel written for people who live in brooklyn and like and sit around you know and, and i just don't know if i believe it like i don't know if i believe that that this woman could exist with this kind of brain 
Like the way that the oh, oh, definitely. oh definitely definitely uh, definitely definitely I don't buy it. it I'm sorry like, I, like, I mean I think there are a lot of women having this exact experience in Brooklyn I think there's a lot writing of about cosmonauts and Emily Dickinson and every, yes. in every house same. in America yes. <sighs> absolutely I'm yes. sorry like I, I just don't buy the voice completely I feel like it's it's what they, everybody wants their voice to sound like in their own head especially people you know like. I, I believe that there's depression. If we're talking about the story, I believe the story. I believe that what the person feels and is going through and the daughter and the husband, like that part, the plot, I totally believe. But in terms of the internal voice representing the way somebody actually thinks, I feel like it's the it's 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 like a almost a romantic version of the descent into a madness or it's like a, it's like I don't know. That's, I still can't feel like it's completely See, honest. He, no, I, I, I disagree because here's the thing. You know, it, if you're some hyper-educated person who knows all this stuff, what you fixate on in your sadness and your depression, you know, isn't entirely different than what you might be if you were completely uneducated and living in a, in a shell. But where you go to for, um, for comparison shopping of your grief is going to be a little bit different. Absolutely. You know, I think I think there's a bargaining that that goes on in in her mind, and she's trying to figure out where she lives relative to um, to the universe and to the literature she's read and all these things. And I think that's that's natural. I mean, if, if you um, if all you knew were um, other people at Kinko's. Well, you're going to fixate on the person at Kinko's whose pants are better pressed than yours. Um, you know who? This is a weird who has, Kinko's who metaphor. Has a, <laughs> who has a better who has a better time on the color printer than you do? Who everything seems to be go. better for them? Whatever it might be. So this is her peer group emotionally, and it's her peer group intellectually. You know, she, Jenny Ophel could have written a book about. Um, a tinker and it'd be the same thing i mean that's right. basically what what we have is is like the paul harding book is that his name paul harding mm-hmm. or is that the guy who's saying 19 no, or, no, 19 you know, paul harding but, but 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 in that book there was a sense of you don't know this world reader so i'm going to paint it for you whereas this book there's a sense of we all know this world and i'm not going to make any connections or explain anything to you you're just supposed to feel smart reading it and that's the part that i didn't I did. I mean, look, I get well, a lot of these references. I get a lot of this stuff. I feel like I'm one of these sort of overeducated, you know, I've lived in Brooklyn kind of people. But that's what I actually didn't like is that there was an expectation that I was supposed to like this because I'm of that class and that type. And that's the part right. that I didn't like because I, I found it off-putting to recognize myself which is maybe a bigger mm-hmm. issue for me. But, but do you know what I'm saying? I someone you can talk to. No, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, it, there was a sense of like, oh, well, this is the book I wanted to, to... It was a book written for me too much. I wanted to be a little bit more... Like, I wanted to feel a little bit strangeness from it. I wanted that strangeness to be expected from the author and from the reader. And instead, I felt this like warm glove comfort of like, aren't we all so smart? Aren't we all in this together? And well, that made me feel it, icky a little bit. It just made me feel pretentious reading it. I know exactly what you're saying. And and yet I don't think it's the weakness of the book. I think you just happen to be in the Venn diagram of people who, you know, get this book. What yeah. I think is happening here is that Jenny Ophel wrote exactly the book she wanted to write with 
without the reader in mind, which, well, no, not entirely, but I think she really was very precious in a good way about what she mm-hmm. wanted to write about and the, her style, and then, you know, it came out how it came out, and I don't think that she would be super upset. And now I'm just guessing what she thinks, but right. I think she's asking a lot of the reader um, to know or get or look up these references, but that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's okay because it's married to the most common story in the world, which is a sad marriage. Right. Um, so that balances fine for me. I I I don't know. I mean, like I guess Todd is the one of us who hasn't lived in New York among the fanged Brooklyn women. So <laughs> his response is maybe more authentic than the distraction of us saying like, "Well, I know these people or I know these references." Right. Um I don't know. It's it's always weird to read a book about somewhere where you've lived. I mean, it's yeah. really right. really That's true. tough. That's true. And yeah. I think the uncomfortable Brooklynness of it also opens up just some general artistic wounds where we think, do we need one more book about people in Brooklyn um, having right. white people problems? Right. Um, which, you know, is, it's, a, it's a valid question. Um, but I think, I think she does it well. And, and there's also just gems. Um, you know, like on page 40 in italics she's basically um giving instructions to her newborn daughter and she says do not jump off a wall do not run in the street don't strike your head with a stone just to see what this will do and then the next line not in italics it says of course it is difficult you're creating a creature with a soul my friend says and i was like oh so that's where my parents fucked up (laughs) (laughs) yeah no there's lots of really really great segments um I feel like maybe yeah, I, I mean, should take a break t- and read this book and again in a couple years. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably like it more. You might, yeah. actually what you might like, Ryder, is just to pull out page 94, um, which is a, uh, the beginning of chapter 22, and it says, how are you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then for the full page, it just says, so scared, over and over and over again for an entire page. Yeah, like that does nothing <laughs> for me. Like, what's the point of that? <laughs> Like, that is, um, like, a tricky sort of, ha-ha, like, I wrote a book, let me show you how I got a bunch of people to print this. Like, okay. <laughs> you know, actually, at the... Do you know what I mean? Like, publisher blog says that. She I don't does, get it. Like, she just um, say, into the Crackerjack editorial publicity and production staff at Knopf, who shepherded this maddeningly formatted book to press. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there was a it, it, early on in the book. I was like, "Oh, you know, when she's reading, she's writing about lying in bed with the speed freaks living above her, and like her travels and her junkie ex boyfrienders." I was like, "Where's the, you know?" I didn't know what this book was about. I had no idea. So I was sort of, "Where's this going? Is this going to be about some, you know, somebody really struggling with life, money issues, different cities?" And then it was like, "Oh no, we're going to spend seventy pages on bed bugs." Like that's really going to be a problem for a long, you know, and I was just like, oh, I can't. So, yeah, I think ultimately the Brooklyn factor killed me. Um, man, I don't know kills, how people in your deal eventually. with this bed bugs, man. Fuck that. <laughs> um, all right, I got to go feed my baby. So Hey, Aww. isn't yeah. that nice? Well, if you enjoyed that uh, look at your life, writer, you're really going to like what we read next, which is Reeling Through Life. How I Learned to Live, Love, and Die at the Movies by Tara Eisen, which we're going to read on next week's episode or in two weeks' episode. So uh, 
pick that up, you guys. It's it's our month of making Ryder examine his life. 